Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. We're happy to have our brother Don Pell at this time. We're going to turn the remainder of our Bible Instruction Time to him. Brother Don, please. In the assembly where I grew up, the Sunday school opening happened every week because we had an order of meetings that was a little bit different from the one you have here. And uh, <clears throat> always enjoyed singing those Sunday school songs. That song we just sang, think about this for a minute. If Jesus goes with me, I will never leave thee, what? nor forsake thee. If Jesus goes with me? How about since Jesus goes with me? I'll go anywhere. Maybe it was a hypothetical, right? <laughs> a hypothetically speaking, if Jesus is with me, I'm a believer, I can go. Well, anyway, so much for that song. Hymns aren't scripture, but they certainly remind us of scripture. I'm going to ask you to read a portion in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter number 4. That's the one that comes after 1 Timothy, right? <laughs> 2 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> And I'm just going to read just uh, a couple of verses there, actually three verses, starting at verse 6. After Paul telling Timothy to preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all suffering and teaching. That's the new generation coming along. Now, here's one who is nearing the end, and we read of that in verse number 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I want to look at five things <clears throat> this morning. First of all, the drink offering. That's the portion that Frankie read earlier. Second, the good fight. Thirdly, the race. Fourthly, the faith. And then lastly, the reward. Paul's facing his own death, and he now he likens it, his sacrificial life, to that of the drink offering, which was part of the daily sacrifice required in the Old Testament economy. And you may remember what was being read, but when that offering was made, you know, meat is, when meat is put to the fire, sometimes it can have a bit of an unsavory aroma. So what was happening here is the drink offering was added to it. And I just want to read the ingredients. With one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour, mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil, and one-fourth of a hen of wine. Notice it's a real careful recipe, isn't it? If you did, didn't do it exactly as God had prescribed, you wouldn't get the necessary result. But when you take that drink offering and you add it to the sacrificial lamb, the net result, as it's made by fire, is a sweet aroma to God. Now, you might ask yourself, well, now, why would Paul do that? Well, you see, 
they represented the final ingredients to the sacrificial lamb. And if you look and study Paul's life, you begin to realize that his life was one completely of sacrifice. Paul's life was constantly tried by fire, fire rather, as he suffered persecution, hardships, resistance. And so now at the end of his life, his death would now serve as a sweet aroma for his sacrificial life that was rendered to Almighty God. In fact, the psalmist says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. A sweet aroma for a sacrificial life that was well served. You can say, I have fought the fight, I have finished the course. Peter writes to the believers who are keeping the faith that their life should be hidden, be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now notice what the gentle and quiet spirit represents, which is very precious in the sight of God. And so he's offering his life as this drink offering with these fine ingredients, flour, oil, wine, mixed together in exactly the prescribed place. And if you look at Paul's life, it followed a pattern prescribed by Almighty God. So let's talk about now the good fight. The fact that Paul's referred to it as a good fight would suggest to it that it was a worthy cause. It was a fight. It was a war worth fighting. How many wars are worth fighting? Strong in his concordance says good, that word good there, the good fight, means excellent in its nature and characteristics and therefore well adapted to its end. In other words, it's a fight that had a purpose. It's a fight that had a meaning. It's a fight that served its purpose, the good fight. And we think about wars, I mean, even the wars in our own country, and think about what they accomplished. Now, they weren't sweet. They were not characterized by that. They were not excellent in nature, but they were rather bloody and awful. Think of our Revolutionary War. What was its, what was its purpose? Well, we like to think, certainly, to obtain freedom and independence. Think about the Civil War. What a nasty war that was. Brother against brother, sister against sister. What was its purpose? Well, it depends on which history professor you listen to. I've heard about three different takes on what was the net result? What was the purpose? What in the world were they fighting for? One will say it was to preserve the Union. I think that's probably true, to preserve the Union. How all these United States not splintered. Or Prince... In slavery. Some will say, yeah, that's what it was all about, ending slavery. Others say, no, no, it was just an economic war. There's the agricultural south and there's the industrial north, and there was a big battle going on between the two. Well, uh, maybe they're all right. Maybe all three above are one of the reasons, or the reasons, rather, for that war. Though we think of World War I, of course, that's the word to end all wars. We know that. And all it did is planted the seeds for the next one. World War II. What was the purpose of World War II, by the way? Well, hopefully to free the world of Hitler's cruel Nazi regime. 
Then there's the Vietnam War. That's the war that should never gotten started. <clears throat> That's the war that I served you know, when I was in the military. Um, people were spit at and all when they'd come back from the Vietnam War. What a shameful thing it was. Afghanistan, well, the war against terror. But Paul describes himself as uh, the, a good fighter. Those who yield to the Holy Spirit, they produce the fruit of what? Love, joy, peace. I've got them all written down. Long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the net result. That's the drink offering. And we realize that this is no ordinary fight. It's no ordinary battle. It's a totally different kind of battle than what people associate battles and fighting with. It's a spiritual battle. And to the Ephesians, Paul says, he says, you... We don't wrestle against the flesh and blood like they did during the Revolutionary War, or World War I, or World War II, or any other wars that we're familiar with. This is a spiritual thing. There are principalities, powers, rulers of darkness that we fight against. We're also told that God provided with us a unique set of armor. As the forces are unseen... As the forces would seem intangible, so would the armor that God provided. Intangible, powerful armor to deal with the unseen enemies. Truth. Can you grab some truth? No, you can't do that, can you? How about righteousness? The message of the gospel of peace. They're all defensive weapons. The faith, Paul refers to as serving a shield and I like to think of the faith as a body of truth that is used to refute the lies that the devil would promote. The salvation that God has provided, it serves as the helmet. And I think of the helmet as eternal security. We are eternally secure in him. An offensive weapon, of course, the words from God himself. And they are living Powerful, they're sharper than any two-edged sword, discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Help from our commander-in-chief, praying always without prayer and supplication in the spirit. Paul was also called upon to fight against the world system that hates his Savior. The fight involves separation from the world. The Lord himself warned about that while he was on earth. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love his own, because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If it hates you, it hated me before it hated you. Finally, Paul knew that he was at war with his own lustful flesh. Imagine being at war with yourself. For I know that in me, he writes to the Romans, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, fighting against his own lustly flesh. But the good news is, is that the good fight fought will result in victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And to the Romans he concludes, O wretched man that I am, 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And a battle goes on. The good fight is still raging on. I say then, walk in the spirit. You will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh because the flesh and the spirit lust and fight one with the other. So that's the good fight. It's the fight that has a purpose. It's the fight that's worth fighting. It's a fight that has an end. How about the race? The race. It's a long, lifelong race. It begins at salvation, and it ends when the Lord calls us home. There's an expression. It goes like this. Life is a journey. Have you ever heard that one? Life is a journey. For the believer, life is a race with a destination in a place called heaven. See, a journey may or may not be or have a real purpose. You could go on a little day trip and stop the smell of roses, couldn't you? Stop here, stop there, and just kind of enjoy yourself. But this particular journey, this particular race, has an intended purpose and an intended definition or destination, rather. The Westminster Shorter Catechism. Anybody remember what that is? What is the first tenet of the Shorter Westminster Catechism? Here's how it goes. Man's chief end is to gather everything he can get. All right? Man's chief end is to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Man's chief end is to glorify yourself. Man's chief end is to get ahead. Man's chief, well, we could go on and on, couldn't we? Man's chief end is to what? Glorify God. Oh, there it is. Glorify God. That's what the race is all about. And to enjoy him forever. I, mean, I learned that when I attended catechism as a young boy. Acts 9, 3 and 4. Paul's race began on the road to Damascus. You remember that story? That's when he saw the light and heard God's voice. Then to, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you remember Saul's conversion story. But here's the interesting thing. When God calls Saul, he already has his race in mind. He had it already mapped out. He had it tracked. And he spent his entire life from that time on to complete that race. Notice what he said to Ananias. He said, he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So that was already planned out for Paul's life. And indeed he suffered, and indeed he persevered by the grace of God. And so now he writes to the Philippians, and here's what he writes to them. He says, brethren... I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting those things which are behind, what does that really mean? Forgetting those things that are behind. Let me suggest some things. Perhaps 
Paul was referring to the days when he persecuted the church, referring to himself as the chief of sinners. Certainly, he shouldn't let that interfere with completing the race. He says, I'm the least of the apostles, but I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Or, perhaps, he was referring to the tendency to allow past failures to discourage you from carrying on. I must confess, I discourage easily. I mean, I discourage easily. And sometimes you can get so discouraged that you say, what in the wide world am I doing? What is this race all about? Look at what happened and look at the result and I failed. And Paul says, don't let any failures behind you interfere with your pressing on. Put those in the past. Notice he says, let us lay aside every weight. Discouragement is a big weight, isn't it? And the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Or perhaps Paul, when he says, forgetting those things that are behind, was referring to the danger of allowing past victories to cause us to be complacent, losing our zeal to continue the race. That can happen as well. Sometimes we often reflect back on the good old days, things that worked in past times. For instance, when I was growing up, my dad held tent meetings. You don't see a lot of tent meetings here in the United States of America, but perhaps in other places. They even had street meetings. After the meeting on a Sunday night, they'd go out into the street, my grandfather and the Pell brothers and all the rest of them, would gather around and they would have street meetings. Janet remembers as a young girl going out and having street meetings in front of the dance hall. You believe in that? I mean, it was a, I don't know how very effective it was, but nonetheless, they were doing that. And uh, so we say, well, okay, can we resurrect that? Well, can we or can we not? I don't know how successfully a street meeting would be out in downtown Claremont, perhaps not very effective at all. But here's the point. You know, it's interesting. When I was overseas in the Philippines, I hooked up with the Literature Crusades. They were there for about a week. And I managed to go up with them and start passing tracks. People waited in line for a track. <laughs> I was blown away. I mean, you know, you pass a track now and it's like it'll be in the trash bin, you know, as you leave many times. They were waiting in line to get a gospel track. We used to go out into the barrios with some of the missionaries, and it wouldn't take about five or ten minutes. We could get a group of people. You know, most of the entire village would come out, and we could preach the gospel. We could, you know, of course they were curious. They were curious. They would come along, and they would grab and pinch me just to see I was for real because I didn't look like them. And they heard about G.I. Joe, come out there and say, Hey, Joe, hey, Joe, you know, and... Uh, Wow, you know, we had opportunities there. Just, just and I heart back to those days when I was growing up. Man, you could do the very same things. Well, sometimes that's not the case. Paul started well, and here's the good news. Here's the good news. He finished well. 
scripture's filled with those who started pretty well, but they didn't finish well at all. King Saul, remember him? How humble he appeared at first. And then he disobeyed God. He became haughty. King Solomon, who asked for wisdom. You know what happened in his old age? His wife turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord of God, as with the heart with his David, his father, David. Then some scriptures encourage us with the lies of those who not only started well, but finished well. And I'm thinking of King David, the man after God's own heart. Remember how he started killing that giant? And he could write, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Think of Moses, the lawgiver, how well he started. And during his death, God pays tribute to Moses. Here's what God wrote. And there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Now we've got to talk about the faith. The faith. I'm going to refer to a verse in Jude, verses 1 and 3, which talks about a common salvation and the faith. Let me read it. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. So the faith represents a body of truth shared by all the saints, a common salvation. Vine, in his Dictionary of New Testament Words, defines that as belonging to several. The common salvation, the faith, belonging to several. It's based on a revelation from the only Lord God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's that which Titus refers to contending for. He says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago... Were, were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is the faith. It is the common salvation. It is the body of truth that was once delivered that is used to refute those who deny our only Lord God and Jesus Christ. Once for all delivered, Titus writes. Here's what Mr. McDonald has to say about that. He says, Notice that not once upon a time, but once for all. The body of doctrine is complete. The canon is finished. Nothing more can be added. If it's new, it's probably not true. And if it's true, it's probably not new. Paul encouraged, or encountered rather, and you're going down through his life and in the scriptures, you remember how he encountered people who were trying to do that. They were trying to add to it, they were trying to take away from it. There were those in Galatia that were doing, what were they doing? They were adding law to it. Then later on, he talks about other gospel. What was that other gospel? Well, they were removing the redemption story from the other gospel. It was a social gospel. And so Paul says you need to contend for that body of truth that was once delivered to all the saints, the common salvation. 
Now we, we close with the last one, and that's the reward. It's the crown of righteousness. And here's the question that's often entertained when we read about crowns in Scripture. Is it or will it be a literal, physical crown? I understand that when Queen Elizabeth, many years ago, 60-some years now, I guess, had the crown placed on her head that she couldn't wear it for a long period of time. Why? It was heavy. You know, get a neck ache. You know, you can't go around with this big old magnificent crown on your head. Let's think about this for a minute. All the things we deal with are not physical. They're spiritual, aren't they? Everything in Scripture, really, when you think about it, is very spiritual, has a spiritual meaning. And let me suggest that rather than a physical something on one's head, it would rather be a recognition, a recognition by our Savior of a runner who completed the race and he stands before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, that'd be a crowning moment, wouldn't it? You finished the race. You fought the good fight. You finished the course. And now here's this recognition that you have completed the race and you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. A crown of, where do we get our righteousness from? Christ. A crown of righteousness. You serve my son, Jesus Christ, faithfully. Down through the years, you completed the course. Be found in him, not having my own righteousness, Paul said which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And John in his epistle reminds us we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So here's the analogy of a runner, long life race. The goal is the finish line. And normally in most races, there are first and second and third place prizes. But in this race, there's only one prize to be obtained. But here's the good news. Here's really the good news. And this has encouraged my heart greatly. When I compare myself to the great men of faith, when I compare myself to the great men of faith in the Scriptures, the great men of faith in our contemporary uh, situation, I think, oh my goodness, have I really counted for anything? I mean, what is it going to be when I compare myself to this person and that person and that person? There's never going to be any losers. That's encouraging. You know that? You finish the course. You're not going to be a loser. You're not going to come in 50th or 60th or 70th or whatever the case may be. You're going to be a winner. Let me, uh, and I'm thinking of the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says, and not to me only, but also to all who love his appearing. Ah, there it is, isn't it? Whether you feel like you failed miserably, do you love his appearing? Yeah? Do you love his appearing? Do you say, oh, Lord, come today. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Those are the ones, no matter how they run it, no matter how well they do or how badly they do, or how many discouraging failures they may encounter, they kept the faith. And they're going to be winners. 
And this is the verse, and Mr. Ironside really points this out in just a really marvelous way. But here's, you know, we think about the judgment of Christ, and it can really cause some real concern in our minds. But let me read this verse in 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, written by the very same author, Paul. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, your failures maybe, maybe some of your sins, and will manif- make manifest the counsels of the hearts. Oh, think about that, your thought life. But then here's the phrase that is so encouraging. Then shall every man have praise of God. Wow, how about that? Forgetting those things that are behind. Every man shall have praise of God. There's something there for everyone who loves his appearing. And so here you are, you're, you're running the race, right? Some of us are getting near the end. Some here maybe just beginning. You ever get weak? You ever feel frail? Ah, uh, Isaiah had the answer, didn't he? Remember what, what Isaiah had to do with those people who, well, those are the people who wait on the Lord, don't they? They're the ones who, right. you know, Ed Scott, I remember visiting him, and I think, you know, here, poor Ed, is really failing physically. And my prayer for Ed is not only will he be have restored a measure of physical health, but Lord, strengthen him in the inner man. Even if you can't walk, strengthen him in the inner man. Bring peace into his heart. Bring joy into his heart. Bring satisfaction into his heart, knowing that he fought the good fight. And that he's right near the finish line. The crown of life is just reaching behind. And notice what Isaiah says. Feeling weary? Those who wait on the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. The inner man, right? They shall mount up with wings like, yeah, eagles, right? They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So there it is, the drink offering, the good fight, the race, the faith, and the reward. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we're thankful that we have been called to run a race, and what a privilege it is. It's hard sometimes, really hard sometimes, and yet we wait on you to renew our strength, anticipating that someday the crown of life will be ours because we love his appearing. Perhaps this morning there's someone here who doesn't love his appearing. They're just traveling. They're just journeying to the road that leads to nowhere. But those of us who have placed our faith and trust in you have a meaningful race with a meaningful destination and a gracious Savior to help us along the way. We just pray, Lord, that these thoughts might have been a blessing this morning. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.